Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We've got a great episode for you today. Do we use social media or are we used by it? That's the question. Social media is brilliant and obscene. It sharpens the mind and it dulls it. It brings nations together and it tears them apart. It perpetuates, reveals, and repairs injustice. It is an untamed beast upon which we can only hope to ride, but never quite corral. What is it doing to us? In his new book, Terms of Service, Chris Martin brings readers his years of expertise and experience from building online brands, coaching authors and speakers about social media use, and thinking theologically about the effects of social media. This book can help you Learn how social media has come to dominate the role the internet plays in your life. Learn how the social internet affects you in ways you may not realize and be equipped to push back against the hold the internet has on your mind and your heart. Chris Martin is content marketing editor at Moody Publishers and a social media and communications consultant. And he's here, of course, to talk about this new book, Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's good to be here. I've long appreciated you, and um, especially it's funny that I'm talking to you about social media. At least it's funny to me uh, because you're one of the first people I remember following on social media when I was in college who was a sort of Christian out there who I don't really know but whose, whose thoughts or writing I appreciate. So I remember you know, it was like you and – Trevin and, and Chally's and some of you earliest guys who were doing so much of the writing back in the aughts uh, when I was in college, who I remember reading so much of. So I'm glad to be here. And it's really fun to be getting to talk to you about this subject. That That's awesome. You know what? Um, yeah, I appreciate that, brother. I, I had Tim on the podcast, oh, maybe a year or two ago, um, talking about kind of the the beginning of the blogosphere, the Christian blogosphere, at least. And some of those early days on it. And what's what I find fascinating is, you know, I I feel like you know I'm an old head in some regards that I've you know was in in, in the early Christian blogging days, and um, I'm not an early adopter to social media, but you know I've been on the major platforms for a long time, Twitter and Facebook and and that sort of thing, and yet I don't really, to be honest with you, like I don't think very deeply about <laughs> about them. You would think having been on these platforms for a while. So I'm grateful for someone like you who comes along and kind of helps us with the, uh, the nitty gritty and, and, and helps us kind of think more substantively about these things. And the first question I have to ask you is you, you use this phrase, um, you assign the label social internet. What's the difference between social media and what you refer to in the book as the social internet? Okay. So there's a, like a, a good smart answer and kind of a like kind of a quick answer. And I'll give you both of them. The quick answer is like, and they're, and they're related. Uh, social internet is meant to be much more broad and social media is like, when I say social media, you think of three or four app icons, right? On your, on your iPhone yeah. home screen or, or whatever you think of Facebook, you think of Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Um, that's when I say social media, that's what you and I, and virtually everybody, everybody else thinks of those things. Um, but so much of what I write and so much of what's applicable to those platforms 
really applies to our life on the internet beyond those platforms. A lot of people don't think about the fact that like Yelp is social media, Uber is social media, Google search results and Amazon book reviews are all social media, but they're not social media apps. So when we talk about social media, we're thinking of those big logos and those companies. We're not thinking of our entire relationship with the social internet. So that's kind of like the quick answer is okay. I want us in all of my writing and whenever I'm talking about this to think about our our relationship with the internet and how we use it to connect with other people, whether that's on one of those big apps or off of them somewhere else. Video, video games are social media, but when I say social media, you don't immediately think of those. Um, the more technical sort of smart answer I get from Neil Postman, who just inspired so much of my work, not only for this book, but just in wanting to dig more deeply into this subject in general. Um, he's most famous probably for Amusing Ourselves to Death, a book that came out over 30 years ago and talked about how our relationship with the television is making us care more about entertainment than truth and what matters. Um, and, and if you go back and read that 30 plus year old book today and uh, it would, it would resound very cleanly and very loudly with our current relationship with, with the social internet, which is kind of what I was like, man, in terms of service, if I can write this in such a way that it's kind of like amusing ourselves to death, but for the internet, I would I would do a service to myself and others, hopefully. So, um, but anyway, in in a speech he gave at um, at a college shortly before he died, just a couple of years before he died, he talks uh, he talks about, and I'm sure he wrote it other places or whatever, but I heard it in a speech I found on YouTube one day. Postman, who was a media ecologist at New York University for decades. Um, he died in 2003, so unfortunately we didn't get a whole lot of his thoughts on the internet. We got a few of them, but not many. Um, he talks about the difference between media and technology, and this is where – this is the smart answer, and it, and it comes from him. It's not talking about social media, again, because it wasn't even around when he talked about this, but it affects how we view social media and the social internet. A technology is – is like the ones and zeros, the electronics. If we're talking about the television and how the television shaped culture, the actual TV is the technology. And uh, media is the kind of is the way we use a piece of technology to create culture. So uh, your television is the technology and the nightly news program or the reality TV show or that sitcom. Those are media. Uh, those are the way that that technological device has been used uh, to create culture um, of varying degrees of, you know, vulgarity or what have you. Um, so, so that's that's kind of in the TV. It's kind of easy to see in the internet. Um, the the architecture, the structures, the search engines, the algorithms that undergird the technologies that are used at the kind of base that most of us just never even think about. Really, like the technology, the ones and zeros that unless you're a coder or IT guy listening to this, you never think about because it just confuses you. That's the technology. And media, or in this case, social media, is the way that that technology is used to create culture. And obviously, in, in the case of social media, to connect people across the world. And so I want us to think about not only social media, which is that goofy cat video you watched or that inspiring blog post you read. That's social media. And I think we should consider how social media affects us. But I think we should also consider how the social internet, like the actual 
technologies, the ones and zeros, the algorithms that undergird Facebook? How how do those things change and 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 warp the way that we think about and see the world? Yeah. Um, and so I want us to think not only about the media that's sort of built on top of the technology, but kind of dig down to the foundational technologies that that bring us that media. So that, that's why I distinguish the two. And and I try to use social Internet as much as I can. But understanding both in the book and in, in how I talk that not everyone's going to understand what I'm saying, I kind of go back and forth. But they are they are different. Yeah, it, it makes me you know think of the reality of of when most of us had access to the Internet. You had, uh, I mean, you know, laptops, I, I suppose, were around, but most of us had, you know, desktop computer. We had a place you would go in your house or yes. in your office, you know, at your desk or something, and you would have to go on to the Internet, right? You had to, uh, you know, dial a number up or something. There was, you know, you heard the little submarine noise, you know, the bong <laughs> bong. You had the whole, the whole rigmarole, and it's, I'm going on the Internet, and if you were in a, you know, if you had a family and sometimes, you know, you're dialing up and someone can't be on the phone, like, can you get off the Internet? I'm trying to make a phone call. So it was like a thing that you did. You you went there. Now, um, to your point about, you know, technology, how, how that has changed, you, we don't really go on to the Internet. We're We're always on the Internet and it goes around with us. You don't go to a place in your house or your office and sit down and go onto the internet, you carry the internet around in your pocket. And, and, it, and it's much more an extension of ourselves, I think, than it used to be. I remember when it was mundane, and here's the question that I wanna, wanna ask you, because sometimes I see, um, almost every day I look up my on this day on Facebook, I'm one of those yeah. old people who still looks at Facebook. Um, and I find that fascinating that Facebook began as a college student social you know, platform. Um, in fact, you had to have, I think, a college Yes. Uh, email address to, to even get it. Now it's only old people that are on there. <laughs> I mean, it's I the guess same, it's the same. It's the same people. It was th- I was thinking about this the other day. Sorry to interject. Yeah. But some of some of those quote unquote old people, this is a weird thing to think about. And it's going to make both you and I feel old because I started using <laughs> Facebook in like 2006 when it was first made available to non college students. I was a sophomore in high school. Um, but yeah. some of those quote unquote old people on Facebook today were some of its first users, probably those <laughs> those like parents of teenagers who are getting on in 2004. I mean, they, yeah, you know, maybe. they're not, they're not 65, but they're, they're, you know, the sort of parents that are always on Facebook and maybe no, not I just think of like, <laughs> I mean, I think of my family, like my, my mom and dad who are in their early seventies and all their brothers and sisters and all sure. of their, all their peer group who were not the prime that, you know, they were not there at Facebook's inception. They, right. They would, and even when it became publicly available, they were not on it, you know, um, and so it's become kind of the social media, but in any event, I see the, on this day, um, you know, every day. So I can see like what I've posted since I've been on there on, on particular dates. And, and even if like, you know, there are ways to go back and look at your early tweets and things as well in the early days of those sorts of platforms. And I know those aren't the only, you know, social media applications, but in the early days, it was, so it was very mundane in a way it was very transparent. Like we're putting our whole life on there. But it wasn't like necessarily, you know, the the inner workings of our angst and our existential <laughs> ruminations. It was Jared. Is, you know, well, Facebook used to have your name and it would say Jared is and you would type yes. something or would just say your name and you would type something. And so it'd be things like Jared is mowing the lawn <laughs> or Jared is watching. So you think you can dance with Becky or something like that. Um, the You know, the mundane aspect of it. 
has certainly morphed to now we're certainly sharing our whole lives, but in a much deeper and more perilous way, less mundane. So what happened along the way to get us from where we started to where we are? And I know it's a big question, but what are some of the you know bullet points? Yeah, so that is such a big question. And frankly, we could spend the whole time talking about it. In summary, what happened is once upon a time, kind of what you described just now, um, online life was downstream of offline life. Um, our, our internet lives were reflections, um, of what were, or shadows even, cause they're not the same, uh, sort of shadows, maybe distorted reflections of what our lives were like offline. Um, there wasn't a lot in those, you know, late, late nineties or even early two thousands days, you know, before the internet opened up, you know, back when we were using AOL or Prodigy and these more gated internet platforms, the, they were called walled gardens is kind of the term for them. There wasn't really a ton of content that was created uniquely for the internet. There wasn't a ton of internet culture, quote unquote, which is like, if I could describe what I try to write about, internet culture is is right in the bullseye. Um, internet culture wasn't really a thing. Like if you ask people what internet culture was in 1999, they would look at you funny. Like, what do you mean? Because um, internet culture was really just bits and pieces of broader culture. It was there wasn't content that was really written for or produced specifically for the internet. Like if you went to NewYorkTimes.com, you would get articles that appeared in the New York Times that day. However, today, the New York Times physical paper is going to be a filtered down, narrowed, winnowed down version of the hundreds of pieces of content they have on their website. Um, so so back then, the internet was really a reflection of offline life. Um, and it was, I would say, downstream of offline life. However, the river has turned, if that's even possible. Uh, the, the river has turned the way that it flows. It flows oppositely now, in, in, in a lot of ways anyway. Um, so much of our offline lives are now downstream of internet culture. Inter I would say the social internet, and this is why I have a semi-controversial, pretty controversial opinion among some, that the internet, that the social internet is the most consequential human invention in the history of mankind. Um, and I think, I think, <laughs> not uh, the cotton gin, like, eh? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe in terms of like media, like more than books, I think it's bigger than the printing press. Um, okay. but, okay. but, um, Anyway, we, we could get into that, but I think it's because it's like the printing press at light speed, basically. Um, so the world is downstream of the internet now. Like if you think about how much of culture comes from the internet, for good or for ill, how much of culture comes from the internet, it's kind of staggering. I mean, think about the number of number one songs in the past two years that were that blew up on Facebook. Or not Facebook, sorry, TikTok. They certainly didn't blow up on Facebook. That blew up on TikTok. <laughs> The, like there are record producers or uh, or record companies pushing their artists to a point of s serious frustration. There have been a number of articles written about this, pushing musical artists to create the next TikTok hit. Like that's that's where we're at. Think about how many times you've I don't know if you watch like the evening news or world news tonight or I don't anymore. But I did growing up. And whenever I go to my parents house, you know, for Thanksgiving or whatever, they'll have right. like ABC's world news tonight with David Muir on while we're watching dinner or whatever. Um 
And there are so many times I've been watching that or like one of the morning news shows like Good Morning America or the Today Show where it's like – and now we turn from this incredibly serious world event half a world away where you know some bomb blew up or something. Now back home, Roscoe the dog went missing this week and he was reunited with his owners. Here's a video that went viral on Twitter of – you know, and it's just like <laughs> what in the world? Like so much. Right. Like so that's kind of a silly example, but I think you're laughing. I think you might get what I'm saying. Like a a lot of our culture flows downstream of what is going on on the internet. And what happened is I think is just time. And and I think the world went from out there, you know, a, around the world. It went you can't you can't see what's going on in Greece unless you actually go there or you pick up Encyclopedia Britannica. And then it came to our living rooms or our cars with the radio. And then it was still there with the television. And then it moved into our homes in a much more intimate way with the computer where like, instead of, you know, seeing a picture of what it looks like in Greece, uh, in a, an encyclopedia Britannica, or even on the evening news, I could poke around maybe even a, a primitive live webcam of what's going on in Greece right now from my, from my computer room in my house to now we have that in our pockets at, at all times. Um, there's, you know, I, I have a bit in this second book that I'm writing that comes out in 2023 about how a stage, you know, we went from having to go downtown to go to the go to the theater to catch a show to, to see what's going on on stage to now, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we had stages in our living rooms with the with the televisions explosion, the 70s, 80s and 90s, I suppose. Uh television's explosion brought a stage into our living room and now we have stages in our pockets and we can be entertained at all times uh, and it's not just entertainment obviously discipleship happens there and, and all kinds of other interactions but i think i think you're you're on to exactly what's happened is is we've slowly seen the world creep into our pockets um which is which is really exciting in many ways and kind of kind of precarious in a lot of others um, and I think there's just so many implications, whether it's mental health on young people I mean, mental health on everybody. But most of the data that's been coming out about mental health and social media has been around young people. And there's just so much going on with that. But but anyway, I think there's a lot that's happened. And I think largely it's just been the world has gotten a lot more closer to us. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about some of the impact, some of the shaping it's had, particularly on individuals Let's start at the individual level. I was thinking the other day of just how. Um, so my wife and I, we have this running joke when we're, you know, driving around or something. And one of us will say, um, who was the guy in that movie who, you know, blah, blah, blah. What was the, you know, that, you know, brown haired guy that was the cop and whatever. And, and we'll sit there and think about it. And then one of us will make the joke, you know, if only we had access to a device that could present information uh, about these things, you know, at uh, at whim. And of course we do. We're, we're joking because we could just pull up IMDb or something and look up the movie and go, there's the guy right there. But there was a day before you had that, you just didn't know things. <laughs> you, maybe you could call the library and, and – uh, you know, they have the, you know, they have the information desk and you could say, what's the capital of such and such? Or maybe you had encyclopedias. But in general, when you're thinking of just all the minutiae, you know, maybe major things you could look up somehow in, in a reference book. But all these little things like who was the guy that did that and who all of that, you just if you couldn't think of it, you just didn't know it. <laughs> and maybe you just rediscovered it later. Now. We know everything, or, or we at least have the ability to, to try to know anything um, and everything. And it's almost like a, you know, uh, a feigned omniscience of of some kind, or you know, mastery of knowledge. Um, 
maybe not just that specifically, but what are, how is this shaping us? I mean, just the fact that we now have access to information like crazy at, at, you know, 24 seven at just the few taps of a finger or scroll of a, of a mouse. Um, how was that? And then even what you were referencing in terms of our, our young people, how are teenagers, I know teenage girls in particular are, are hugely affected their mental health and things, but probably not just girls on the individual level. How has this shift? Um, how is it shaping us? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You're saying that thing about looking anything up. There's a comedian, I forget his name and the bit is laced with profanity, I think, but he has a great bit about how like once upon a time, you didn't know where Tom Petty was from. And if you didn't know where Tom Petty was from, you just didn't know. And then, you know, one day you'd, you'd find yourself at a restaurant in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and you'd approach someone and say, Hey, you've got a Tom Petty, the heartbreaker shirt on. Where's Tom Petty from? And she'd be like, you know, the woman would say, he's from here, he's from Florida. And you'd be like, wow. And then that's how you met your wife. And it's like, <laughs> it's a, it's a kind of a funny bit about exactly what you just described. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's shaping us in so many ways. Uh, I mean, like I, in the book that you mentioned, as you introduced me, I, I narrowed it down to five primary ways. I think the social internet is shaping us. And, and I always like to say to, I say the ways the social internet is shaping us. I don't like to blame the internet. Like, I don't want to say like, it's shaping us, but it is, I like to say more precisely, our relationship with the social internet is, is shaping us. And, and we can mediate that relationship. We can, we can decide how we want to affect and influence that relationship to some degree. Um, but yeah, I think, man, it's influencing us in so many ways. I think it's leading us to think that attention assigns us value. I think it's leading us to unnecessarily trade our privacy for, for expression. Like we want to express ourselves so deeply in so many ways, especially I think of those power users on Facebook um, who who just like constantly share and share and overshare about their about their lives and then wonder why they get, you know, highly tailored, creepy ads about what they were sharing about. Um, but like we just we trade our privacy for personal expression, which I think is a huge issue. I think like. I'm not going to go on a rant on that because I could, but <laughs> I think it's one of the most underrated negative effects of our relationship with social media because I think privacy is super important. And it, I think it goes a long way to maintaining human dignity, which we should care about as believers. Um, and and it, this isn't about secrecy. Secrecy is when you're trying to hide something. Privacy is just having the freedom to not be observed, really, like having the freedom to not you know, be surveilled. Um, and I think too many of us are willing to give up vast treasure troves of information in order to express ourselves online in exchange for, um, you know, in, in exchange for likes and comments and shares and all that. But I think we pursue affirmation instead of truth. What's funny is it's like in your example, you described, we, uh, you know, we could, we can find anything we want to know. We could do, you know, we could learn anything. And then we, what we end up doing is just like finding information that confirms all of our biases or, or thoughts <laughs> that we already have. Right. Um, like, That's I think exactly it's so, right. it's so, yeah, it's so discouraging that like, yeah, there are so many ways that, that we could expand our knowledge or, or diversify what we know because of the internet when really we just like try to find things that affirm what we already think is the truth, which like, okay. I mean, that's how it's, it's good to find things that you align with, but I think the internet is also very helpful to expose us to ideas that we maybe have never considered, even if we don't end up adopting them to at least consider them and learn how they might influence other people or influence how we believe or think what we think and believe. Um, I think that kind of thing can be really helpful. And then finally, the last two kind of thoughts I have on how the internet shapes us go together a little bit. 
um, I think the internet has made it super easy for us to demonize or even dehumanize the people that we dislike. And then once we've demonized them, we justify destroying them. Um, and it, like some people would talk about cancel culture in this space and surely that's kind of one manifestation, but I think it can take any form, yeah. um, any number of forms of how we can just try to wreck other people's lives or make them feel terrible about themselves because we found a way to make them seem less than human. Um, and, and to your point, I won't speak on this a whole lot because we should maybe go to another question, but yeah, on young people, I would just encourage people to read slash listen to a lot of what Jonathan Haidt has done here. He's a professor again at, at NYU, NYU crushing it with the professor cited in this podcast here. Um, <laughs> he's a professor there and he's written many books, but, but the coddling of the American mind with Greg Lukianoff is probably the one most relevant to this conversation, relatively new book. Um, and some of it would be interesting to folks reading, I'm sure, but he talks, he does talk a lot about young people and how young people are affected by social media. There's just so many problems with doing research on young people and mental health and the causes of mental health. I'm not a researcher in this space, so it's hard for me to speak very, um, very wisely here, very intelligently. But what I do know is that it's really hard to pin down, you know, a specific, here's why young people's mental health has gotten worse. And it certainly has, but there are just so many factors and young people are so fluid and volatile, I guess you could say that it's, mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to like diagnose, Oh, it's because they spent three hours on Instagram every day. Well, also maybe they, they had a really hard day at school. There are just so many things that make this sort of research difficult, but he does a really good job of just showing not necessarily a causative relationship, but a very seriously positive correlation relationship, a correlative relationship, I guess you could call it, between social media use and declining mental health among young people. And he does highlight young girls especially and not – you know, he's not sexist or anything like that. The reason is, as he describes it, is young women, the way that they resolve conflict – is affected much more acutely by social media than the way young men resolve conflict. Whereas young men are much more likely to resolve things coming to fisticuffs or something where they they might like, you know, shove each other or, or hurt each other physically. Um, young girls are more likely to like socially undermine one another, stab each other in the back, gossip about one another. Um, he's, he's identifying this as not a Christian, just things that he's seen in his sociological research. And he says, therefore, it makes sense that young girls are being negatively affected by social media more than young boys because social media exacerbates those stressors for girls more than it does for boys, um, which makes a lot of sense to me. And again, it's hard to prove that, but he's done so much research in this space for so many years. I kind of I kind of trust him on that. Another good point that Derek Thompson makes in his book Hitmakers, which came out a few years ago, gosh, probably almost a decade ago at this point, um, he makes a really good point. It's not a book about young people. It's really just a book about like why things get popular, whether on the internet or not. It's a fascinating read. Very Gladwell-esque if anyone listening likes that kind of thing. But he wrote this book um, called Hitmakers. And in it, he talks about how young people are experiencing heightened levels of anxiety because they're always on stage. So, Jared, if you think about mm. um, this – and this was a little bit the case for me, but social media was coming – to be a big deal when I was in high school. Um, but when you're in high school, a number of years before me, you, when you left high school uh, for the day, and we're using high school as an example, obviously every level, but when you left high school, um, you got to kind of like relax at, at home, I'm guessing, um, to, to some degree. Um, you you didn't have to, you know, the high school, in, in the high school, 
you have classrooms, hallways, lunchroom, you know, outside waiting for a bus or whatever. The classroom is not really a performative space. I mean, it is a little bit, but largely you're like listening to a lecture or doing schoolwork, taking a test, whatever. But the high school hallway, the high school lunchroom, any extracurricular activities, those are all sort of performative spaces. They're like the runways where you kind of like strut your stuff and like try to make like social, you know, so build a social reputation or, or get popular or build friendships, that kind of thing. Um, for many high schoolers, like walking between classes throughout high school is perhaps the most stressful part of their day, you know, where they're having to interact with their students or, or, you know, maintain those relationships is the most social part of the day to be sure. And there's a sort of performance that's going on as students are walking the hallways of their high schools. But when, you know, in the eighties and the nineties, obviously before that, um, even early two thousands, when you left high school, you could kind of let your hair down as it were, you could just be yourself unless you're getting on the phone with a friend or going to the mall or going to a high school basketball game or something until you went out and decided to be social, you could sort of let your hair down, be yourself, not feel like you had to perform unless obviously maybe you had a toxic home life or something. But today, as Derek Thompson talks about in Hitmakers, high schoolers are always in the hallway. You, you never that stress, that social pressure of having to perform in the high school hallway, you can never escape it. Or as Soshana Zuboff says in the age of surveillance capitalism, not talking about young people, but really just people in general, there is no backstage to which we can retreat. Um, and, and, and it's especially stressful for young people who are trying to not only discover who they are, but discover how they relate to other peers. Um, whether of the same sex or otherwise in a romantic relationship or just platonic. And so I think Derek makes a really good point. And if if I could prove this, I, I would try. But like I think just that feeling of always having to be in the hallway um, has to have a tremendous negative effect on young people's mental health. I can't imagine how it would have affected me if, you know, if I would have had that. I had a cell phone. I had social media, but I didn't have social media on my cell phone in high school. And and I can't imagine. Um, I mean, I can because I work with youth in our church, but um, I can't imagine experientially what that's like to have to live with that every day. Yeah. Well, you know, the performative nature of it, too, I, I don't think is just limited even to youth. It seems like even totally. older, you know, I mean, I see it among the older set on on Facebook in particular, the kind of mimicking of what they're consuming um, in other spaces, whether it's cable news or or just other social media sites or, you know, um, they're on their soapbox. They're, you know, they're, you know, kind of, it's a performative thing as well. Um, I wonder now if you could just sort of apply what you just kind of outlined, right? So to, to the church in some way. So how are individual Christians, their relationship to the social internet, how is that shaping the evangelical church? And just to be specific, I guess we could just say in the West or the American evangelical church. Oh man, how is, how is social, how is our relationship <laughs> with social media as Christians shaping the church? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer here. Um, but speak the truth, brother, speak the truth. I, but, but like I, I talk with, like some, I think some of my most responsive readers to my newsletter or to the book have been pastors and they don't have great things to say about how social media has been affecting their, their church. I've mentioned briefly, and I think I mentioned it kind of before we started recording that I've written a second book that'll come out in March of 23, probably, um, called 
the wolf in their pockets about which is specifically about how social media affects the people you're trying to lead, whether that's in the church or perhaps even in your home. It's kind of written specifically for like pastors or even lay church leaders, community group leaders or whomever. Um, but but the reason I wanted to write it is because I've heard through all of this writing the past few years on, on social media from pastors and, and other church leaders so frequently about how church members are are coming in, you know, rambling about some conspiracy theory, political, religious, or otherwise, um, that church members have gotten, you know, I talked to pastors who have pastored for 20 plus years who who told me that church members are getting more combative and, mm-hmm. and confrontational than they ever have. Um, and, and even it's not like there are these, just these new people who are, who are coming into the church and causing a ruckus, but like people who have always been kind and, and gracious are now becoming more angry and um, wanting to sort of cause conflict or force their way or um, not even it's not even that they're necessarily bringing up problems in the church so much as trying to get their way as, as that's kind of a common theme that I've heard. Um, and so I have largely heard negative things about how social media is affecting the church. Um, there's one mega church pastor in evangelicalism who's very well known and we don't have to mention for sake of making anybody feel strongly about this. Um, there's one mega church pastor in, uh, in America who saw a, a group of people attempt to take over the church government by organizing with even non-church members on social media who wanted to see that church overthrown, like see the church leadership overthrown. Um, and and it was it was church members and non-church members who don't like the pastor of the church who kind of <laughs> created a, a a group on social media. I don't know if they used a particular platform, but they were working through social media to try to sway a a church vote and a, through the church government process to try to overthrow the leadership of the church. Um, and so I, I just heard story after story, either personally from pastors I've spoken with as I wrote this second book or through observing observing interactions of people on on social media you know myself that it's making us more combative it's making us um less gracious which i guess those two things go hand in hand uh and also and this is a another thing that i guess affects the local church to some degree um but also just kind of broader american evangelicalism if i can dare speak to that broad of a demographic is is the celebrity aspect i think the celebrity aspect is a significant effect on i think it does affect how pastors pastor probably um maybe less so now than it did even seven years ago you would have a better feeling on that than i do um but i've seen a sort of like infatuation with disgust toward this idea of celebrity or being at all known outside of your local church context, you know, for, I'm talking for pastors or church leaders here. And it's just, it's been an interesting sort of, uh, tide to watch roll in and roll out of how, uh, we, we become comfortable with pastors becoming sort of well-known beyond their local church congregations. And then we become very uncomfortable with it. We see pastors who lead well, and then pastors who abuse their leadership. We, you know, I, it's just been really interesting and, and I'm not old enough to know, ah, this is, Nothing new under the sun. We've had this all, you know, decades ago. But I think I think social media has just provided a sort of window into everyone's business, if you will. Um, I think, you know, maybe in 1980, if some pastor um, conducted himself poorly out in, you know, out in Nevada, 
me sitting here in Tennessee, I wouldn't know anything about it and I wouldn't necessarily care. But now if some pastor, you know, is a is a jerk and gets himself fired from his church out in Nevada in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, I'm going to see that on social media all over the place. And it's going to be this huge deal. And so I just think it's interesting. I don't know that it's necessarily good or bad. I'm not trying to pass a moral judgment on it. But I think it's interesting that sort of everyone's business has become everyone's business. And I think that could have serious negative effects in the long run. However, it could also provide some shadow of accountability uh, if if done wisely, though, I, I have my doubts about that. So I don't, I don't know if that helps at all. But just so many, so many things I've observed in working in this space because I've spent so many years in working in social media professionally, but then also in talking with some pastors firsthand. Um, I don't see social media being a net positive for the overall health of the church in the West. Yeah, you know, and and even just as a as a writer um, and a reader, just the way we consume content now, and the way just you know the soundbite kind of nature of tweets and posts, and I know some of the platforms allow for longer, you know, um, longer means of discourse, but you know, I've noticed just as you have, I'm sure how you know, the long form blog post has kind of gone the way of the dodo. I think there's been, you know, there's still some who are devoted to it and it's, but it's kind of a niche thing, um, you know, replaced by shorter posts, lots of subheads, you know, listicles, all those sorts of things. And I, I worry just the nature of, of the content and the way we consume content on social media affects our ability to to think deeply, to uh, give sustained interest to, um, you know, to long reading or even even to, you know, sustained preaching and all those sorts of things. Um, what's our way out, brother? Like, how do we what do we do? I know that's a big question. And, and, and the latter part of your book is dedicated to kind of, you know, uh, some commitments and some applications that we can make. You've got um, six whole chapters on that. But if you could just kind of outline for us, what's what's the way out? Because obviously the internet's not going away and social media's not going away. And I don't think your answer is we should be just become Luddites of some kind uh, or, or monastics when it comes to this stuff. So what do we do? Yeah, I'm very careful not to tell people to just like log off and delete their accounts um, because it won't fix the problem. Now, I think that may be really helpful for some of us. Um, you know, I, I've, I've severely pulled back from Twitter over the years. Now I still use it, but I've, I've basically put a couple of barriers between myself and Twitter. Whereas I used to just like have it up on a, one of my two monitors all day, every day when I was working, you know, the first five to seven years I was in, I was in my career because it was part of my job. Um, but now that it's not part of my job, I don't have the sort of obligation to have Twitter, which is my pre- preferred social media platform. I, I don't have Twitter up all day, every day. I, I put a couple barriers between me and my own Twitter account. Also, so I don't just tweet foolishness, which I did for a solid decade. Um, and so, you know, I've tried to mediate my relationship, but I, I haven't felt the need to completely pull the plug because I don't find myself addicted to it, nor do people who I trust who would tell me if they find me addicted to it. Um, I don't, I don't find myself, you know, like paying attention to it more than, more than I pay attention to my daughter or, or letting it hinder my relationships or, or, or my walk with Christ, certainly, um, at least in any, any substantive way that would clearly 
present itself. But I think all of us need to kind of figure out what's our right relationship with social media. I think there are two, to put it very simply, I think there are two definite wrong ways to look at social media and one that's kind of in the middle that I would advocate for. So first, I think it's wrong for us to uncritically embrace social media. So just like any new platform that comes along, any new feature that comes along to just embrace it and say, this is so cool. It's the future. Let's hop on it and see, you know, what it's like. Um, I, I think it's really not helpful to uncritically embrace, which tends to be more the posture of young people. If you wanted to make a generalization. Um, I also think it's not wise to, um, to be ignorantly passive of, or passively ignorant of, of these platforms of social media and the social internet generally. Like, I don't think it's helpful to just say, ah, that internet is just teeny bopper youth stuff. Like who cares about, I, I, you hear this more about individual platforms these days than you do the internet general though. However, when I started my career in 2013 and I was starting in a social media role at Lifeway, my wife and I had a very well-meaning friend who said, Hey, do you think you should be getting a job in social media? Like, I feel like it's going to be just kind of a fad and it's going to go away. And it's kind of funny to look back at that now in 2013 and be like, yeah, no, not really. (laughs) But but so being passively ignorant of social media and just being like, ah, it's not a big deal. It's not real life. No, I, I really think social media is real life for good or for ill. Who we are online is who we truly are. Um, and I think I think that can sometimes be scary, but I think is only becoming more true as time goes on. So I think a right relationship with social media is one that's um, a sort of a sort of intentional engagement or a critical engagement where it doesn't mean you're on every platform. Maybe you only maintain a, an Instagram account or you, maybe you don't even maintain anything. But I think what it we all need to pay attention to social media um, because if it's not affecting us, like if we're if we just totally abstain, if we are a Luddite and we're just like, all right, I don't want anything to do with it at all. Um, we should probably understand how it might be affecting our spouse or our kids or our family members, or if we're helping out leading in a church in some way, how it's affecting our church members. We should be aware and we should be engaged, um, but but critically so and intentionally so. So I, adv- I advocate for asking questions like, what do I hope Instagram accomplishes for me? Um, why do I have a Twitter account? What's the role of Facebook in my life? Like what, what is my relationship with Facebook, what is the um, best that comes out of that? Like, what am I hoping to get out of that? I think sometimes it might be silly or feel silly to ask questions like this. <laughs> like, are you serious? You, you mean I'm supposed to be like, what's the point of Instagram in my life? Um, but yeah, like I, I really think with the the average person uses social media two and a half hours a day, according to the latest, latest data from Hootsuite, which is a significant amount of time. Um, and I think if we're going to, use something two and a half hours a day, or even on the, like, let's say you're like, ah, I don't use it that often. Okay. An hour a day. If you're going to do something for an hour a day, you might want to have like an intentional relationship, a, a thoughtful relationship with that platform and with that form of media and not just use it willy nilly without knowing how it may be affecting your understanding of beauty or what you believe to be the truth. Uh, or how you view your relationship with the spouse or with the Lord. Um, and so I think we should have more 
just a more critical relationship with these platforms than we do and ask harder questions of these platforms than we do. We've really let these things in just like Trojan horses into our lives without asking, what are they doing with all my data? Or, um, or how is this affecting how I view myself and my body image or, you know, or my relationships? How does this viewing how I view the image of God or how I view community? We're just not asking these questions. And while I don't, think social media is all bad. And I don't think social, the answer is to just delete our accounts. Um, I think there's plenty of good that, that can be, uh, experienced and be injected into social media by Christians. Um, I do think that we need to have a bit more of an intentional relationship with these platforms because I do not think they're neutral. I think they're bent towards sin because they're created by sinners. Um, and we, in, in our, tendency to sin and and especially in ways that the in, that the internet uh can can supercharge um our pride or our lust and things like this i think we have need to have an especially careful and intentional relationship with the social internet so that it doesn't lead us away uh, without us even realizing it um from critical relationships we have or or from our walk with christ or, or you know down a down a path we don't want to be walking so i think there are so many things we need to consider um but I think having a critical engagement, having a sort of intentional attitude towards social media, not always being negative, but kind of recognizing what these platforms cost us and, and asking hard questions. Um, I think those are really important. And out of those six chapters that kind of are the end of the book, the one I would say is most important is just like build real friendships uh, yeah. that can lead you to have intentional and actual accountability. And I don't mean necessarily like, accountability software on your phone kind of thing, because that's fine. And that like, that can be really helpful. I'm not saying that that's bad either, but I just mean like build real friendships before you like offline friendships, before you build online friendships and make sure that at least a handful of those offline friends who can actually like show up if you need them to, or be a shoulder to cry on if you need one, make sure they also have permission to tell you when you're acting a fool online. I had through various periods of my life had not have not had that. And it was very detrimental to me. And I mean, I was like young and new to Nashville and like didn't really know anybody who would call me out. But since then, since I've a gotten a little bit more mature and, and older and B have gotten a handful of friends who have permission to and have called me out when I've been being foolish on the Internet, the Internet and my relationship with it has helped my walk with Christ more than more than hurt it. Uh, whereas before, I would say it, it was not only hurting my walk with Christ, but also hurting my witness of of the gospel. So, I think having those having friendships that are deep enough that those those friends can have permission to call you out when you're when you're sinning or just simply like acting foolish in one way or another, uh, those things are critical uh, to having a more healthy relationship with social media. That's super helpful, brother, and. You know, obviously, our, our our you know our friendship with Christ, our walk with Christ, is the most um, you know central aspect of this. If, if we're satisfied in Jesus, we will be less susceptible to needing that that affirmation, the dopamine rush of likes and comments yeah. and that sort of thing. And you know, taking every thought captive to Him helps us in terms of just being circumspect with not just what we look at, but how much time, how much attention, how much focus how much orientation of our life is around these things. Well, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for the book, brother. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm grateful for you too. We've been talking with Chris Martin. His new book is called Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. It's available from B&H, wherever good books are sold. Make sure you pick that up. As always, dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on your social media platform of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.